You're listening to the New Life Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. For more info on service times and locations, you can find us at newlifefoursquare.org. In this episode, Pastor Ken Santos closes our series of love chapters, covering 1 Corinthians 13 with a powerful reminder. We as a body of Christ must operate from his spiritual gifts and keep love in front of us. I was there, I was at the Harbor City side uh, last Sunday, and so, you know, we're just one big happy family. We're one church, two locations, um, but whether you come here or whether you go over to the Harbor City side, you're going to feel the love from your New Life Church family. Um, Your pastor's here, we love you, we're here for you. Um, Some folks have left us for whatever reason. They've gone to the mega church out there, and God bless the mega churches. They're, they have a lot of resources, a lot of ministries available, but, you know, when someone is in need, when someone passes away, guess who they call? They call our church to facilitate the funerals, to be there, to visit the hospitals, and, and we do it. You guys are there. You guys pray for them. You guys go and love on people, and that's what we are, a loving church. Amen? Now, are we perfect? Are our pastors perfect? No, we aren't. We are, we are perfectly normal people, just like you, all right? We struggle sometimes to be loving. Um, can you believe that? Uh, we get frustrated. We leak out some of our frustration, um, and it comes off as unloving uh, because it's impossible to be loving all the time. You know, there's times when we deal with Uh, EGR people. You guys know what EGR stands for? It's Christianese. It stands for extra grace required. So EGR people are those people who um, require us to have a a lot, to pray a lot. We have to pray more for supernatural love to be able to deal with these people. They're, They're hard to love. They're emotionally draining type of people. They demand to be the center of attention they zap us of our energy and our time. And if we're not there for them, they make sure to tell everybody about it. They're like, you know, pastor didn't come to my birthday party. I don't think he loves me. Or, or I posted a picture of me and pastor on Facebook, and I tagged him, and guess what? He didn't like it. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe like, and so they go kind of overboard. They're, they're hypothetical people, right? These people don't exist in our church, I hope. Um, but these are EGR people. We get emotionally drained. Some of, sometimes our pastors can be EGR. Um, I can be EGR sometimes, and it comes out as irritable, as, you know, just leave me alone. Um, and so sometimes we just have to learn to take a moment to relax, to rejuvenate, to re-energize, to say, hey, I'm here to love people, right? And so that's why we're, we're in this series called Love Chapters. It's a reminder for all of us as a church family to become loving people. So if we've ever been unloving to you, just forgive us. We are perfectly normal human beings, um, and we want to serve and love and lead our church out of love. All right, so we are in 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. That is called the love chapter. 
Um, and where do we find this chapter recited most of the time? At weddings, yes? During Valentine's Day. Um, it's in the, the, the lovey-dovey romantic cards that, that we have. Um, even the non-religious wedding services, they use these types of love scriptures. And this chapter is regarded as the Apostle Paul's exposition on the qualities of agape love. Say agape love. Let's go ahead and read this chapter, and uh, I'm going to use the Passion Translation. I've been liking this translation a lot lately, uh, but then we'll study this uh, passage in the NIV. So read along with me. 1 Corinthians 13, if I were to speak with eloquence in earth's many languages and in the heavenly tongues of angels, yet I didn't express myself with love, my words would be reduced to the hollow sound of nothing more than a clanging cymbal. And if I, have, if I were to have the gift of prophecy with a profound understanding of God's hidden secrets, and if I possessed unending supernatural knowledge, and if I had the greatest gift of faith that could move mountains, but have never learned to love, then I am nothing. And if I were to be so generous as to give everything away, everything I own to feed the poor, and to offer my body to be burned as a martyr without the pure motive of love, I would gain nothing of value. Verse 4, love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle and consistently kind to all. It refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to someone else. Love does not brag about one's achievements nor inflate its own importance. Love does not traffic in shame and disrespect, nor selfishly seek its own honor. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in what is wrong. Love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives up. Love never stops loving. It extends beyond the gift of prophecy, which eventually fades away. It is more enduring than tongues, which will one day fall silent. Love remains long after words of knowledge are forgotten. Our present knowledge and our prophecies are but partial. But when love's perfection arrives, the partial will fade away. When I was a child, I spoke about childish matters. For I saw things like a child and reasoned like a child. But the day came when I matured and I set aside my childish ways. Verse 12, for now we see but a faint reflection of riddles and mysteries as though reflected in a mirror. But one day we will see face to face. My understanding is incomplete now. But one day I will understand everything, just as everything about me has been fully understood. Until then, there are three things that remain. Faith, hope, and love. Yet love surpasses them all. So above all else, let love be the beautiful prize for which you run. May the Lord bless the reading of his wonderful word. Amen. The love chapter. When you read this chapter, it, it feels really lofty. It seems that Paul is setting a, a standard so high when it comes to this idea of love. Now, the word that Paul uses in this chapter is agape. Agape love. 
The ancient Greeks had different, uh, several words to describe love. The first word is eros. Eros is a sensual love or a romantic love. It's where we have the word erotic comes from. It's not necessarily a bad word. It's just that sensual kind of nature of love. Another word for love is phileo. You know, this word means friendship. So when you, when you see the city of Philadelphia, phila is, is friendship, uh, friendship love. Delphia is from a Delphoi brother. So Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Brotherly love or family love can also be expressed with the word storge. Storge is a familial kind of love. It's the affection that family members have for one another. But the idea of agape love wasn't really well known back then. You see, agape love, when we want to know what agape love means, we have to turn to scriptures. And that's when we use all these love chapters that we've been studying in the past few weeks. When we look up the word agape, we're going to see that it, 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 it has a fuller sense of God's love. This is what Christian love is all about. We can only love with agape love if we know what kind of love God has for us. So when we look at chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, we're going to be challenged as followers of Jesus to live according to this higher standard of love, God's love. Not just eros love, not just friendship love, not just family love, but agape love. Now, can any of us on our own live up to the standards of God's love? No. But with Christ, we can. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we can be more loving people. So we're going to try to apply all of 1 Corinthians 13 to every relationship that we have with Christ in our lives. And so we, we might think, oh, 1 Corinthians 13, that's just for the married couples, right? They just recite it at the weddings. Um, but it's not just couple goals for marriage. It's for every single relationship that we're in, especially as a church. Because, look, the context of 1 Corinthians 13 isn't about marriage. Paul is not addressing married couples in this chapter. He's wedging 1 Corinthians 13 in between these two chapters, 12 and 14, that are about the spiritual gifts of the church and how the church operates in its spiritual gifts. The church in Corinth loved spiritual gifts. They were people who were calling themselves Christians. They were speaking Christianese. They were expressing themselves with spiritual gifts, and yet they were acting in a very unloving manner. And so Paul spends the, the, the entire chapter before this one, chapter 12, he tells them, I'm going to paraphrase, he says, you are all one body. The Spirit's giving you all these gifts, and he, 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 he gives it as he wants. He gives it according to, to, he distributes it according to his own will, and each of you have been gifted in a certain way, but you all have to use your gifts for the common good. You can't say to someone, I don't need you, you're not important, your gift doesn't matter. Because God has placed a diversity of people in the church with a diversity of gifts, and these gifts shouldn't divide us, it should unite us. It should allow us to have equal concern for one another. You can't say, you know, 
you can't cut your arm off and say, I don't need you. You can't cut your head off and say, I don't need you. Every gift matters. Every person matters. And then he tells them at the end of the chapter, chapter 12, 31, I want to show you. Now I'm going to show you a superior way to live that is beyond comparison. The church in Corinth was very EGR, extra grace required. The drama in this church would make any of us pastors want to quit. It's a spiritually gifted church, but it's a very carnal church. They're immature. Imagine that. Look at, look at the, some of the words Paul writes to this church in Corinth. Chapter 1, verse 7, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So they were gifted by the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. They had word of knowledge. They had prophecy. They had all that. But look what Paul writes to them. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Chapter 3, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Chapter 4, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud of it. Sick. Chapter 6. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Chapter 8. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. Paul was addressing those who were eating food that was sacrificed to idols. They're forcing others to do the same. They said, look, we know better. You can eat this food. But then those who were weak were saying, no, this violates my conscience. This violates my convictions. I should not eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. And yet you're telling me I can. And so out, this is not a loving way to to, to force people to eat what they don't feel they could eat. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And then in chapter 11, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. What's the point of meeting with each other? You just do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. So these are strong words that Paul has for the Corinthian church when he's writing this letter. People in the church were spiritually gifted, but they were acting like infants. They had an inflated, bloated view about their own individual spiritual gifts, and they thought certain gifts were a sign of higher maturity. Hey, look, I have a, a, a gift of healing, so that makes me more superior than someone else who doesn't have that gift. 
They were exploiting their gifts to the detriment of their brothers and sisters. They were using their gifts to gain power and influence and status. And this is why Paul writes the love chapter. This is the context. Because in the church's quest to obtain and exercise and operate in the best spiritual gifts, Paul points out there's something more supreme. There's a better way to live in Christian community, and it's with love. Love isn't just a spiritual gift. Love is a virtue that permeates and flows through the expression and exercise of all spiritual gifts. Now, don't get me wrong. We need spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are great. The Holy Spirit gives us these gifts according to his will. They're important for the building up of the body of Christ. They're important for us to, to, to show the world that we are different. We belong to Christ. But detached from love, spiritual gifts are utterly worthless. And so when Paul writes this chapter, he's going to break it out into three divisions. The first part, the first section is about the preeminence of love. How love is superior to any gifts. The second part, he's going to talk about the principles or the properties or the attributes of love. And finally, he's going to talk about the permanence of love, that everything else is going to fade away, but love will never fade away. So let's look at this, these three sections. We'll spend more time on the first two. You ready? The preeminence of love. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So Paul puts himself in, in, as the leader here. Look, if I'm going to speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and Paul says later on, like, he speaks more tongues than anyone else. The, 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 um, the, the, the Corinthian church loved to speak in tongues. And back in those days, they would use this brass cylinder. It's, this is what we mean by resounding gong. It's, a, it's an amplifier. It's kind of like this microphone, those speakers that are hanging up there. It's amplifying my voice. It's bringing weight and volume to my voice. And so whenever the Christian church would speak in tongues, they would try to um, show up each other. They would say, look, I can speak in this tongue. Look, I can speak this language. And they would all just start speaking. And the noise would just get amplified throughout the church. Because by speaking in tongues, they're saying, look, I have this heavenly language, this heavenly gift. I'm important. But Paul would spend the whole chapter 14 talking about, you can't just start babbling. You can't just keep speaking in tongues with no one to interpret. You can't just do this without order because tongues were supposed to be a sign for the unbelievers to notice that, hey, something's at work in this church. God is at work there. But apart from love, it was offensive. It was just noise. I was at a church uh, service um, years ago when I got, after I got married, I was married in the Philippines, um, and I stayed there for a few months, and then we were at a service. I remember a young evangelist speaking uh, at the church. He was a missionary student. 
uh, and he was probably trying really hard to be impressive. But I remember something that he told the congregation, uh, something to the effect of, if you don't speak in tongues like I do, then you need to question whether or not you're saved. You need to question your salvation. And, and that didn't sit right with me. That, that, that bothered me. Um, and I, I don't think he meant it in an offensive way, but the way he came across was, you know, tongues are more important than anything else. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. And I didn't agree with that. And he was, because he was kind of trying to, to force people and manipulate them into speaking in tongues. Look, speaking in tongues is great. We believe it. We're a four-square church. We believe in the exercise of the, the gift of speaking in tongues. But there's a time and a place for it. But you cannot say, if I speak in tongues, my spiritual life is better than yours. You cannot tell someone that they are less than Christian because they don't have the same gift that you have. Without love, you're just making a bunch of noise and offending people. Without love, I offend others. Without love, I am nothing. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Imagine if, you're a, if you have a prophetic gift. That's an amazing gift to have. You're, a, you're known to have insight and knowledge. You're a mouthpiece for the Lord. People are drawn to you. They hang on every word you say. They tweet and retweet everything that you tweet, right? They listen to you. You're someone that your words are powerful. Or maybe you're someone who has this faith that can move mountains. They say, sister, man, every time sister prays for me, I get healed. My problems go away. You have to, you have to go to her. She's the one that has the gift of healing, the gift of getting things, uh, getting your problems answered, right? And so someone might think, hey, everyone's coming to me. I must be important. People are impressed by me. And yet, without love, Paul says, I am nothing. If there's no love, my ministry and my leadership has no real value. I might be successful. I may have a lot of followers. I may get results, I may be admired, I may be appreciated, I may be applauded, but without love, as far as God and eternity are concerned, I'm nothing. Without love, I gain nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, Paul says, I gain nothing. Now we know that love takes sacrifice right? It makes sacrifices. These are extreme for, uh, forms of sacrifice in this verse. Giving everything you own to the poor. Giving your body as a sacrifice for someone else to be punished or tormented. Notice in this translation, it says that I may boast. So if, is it possible to sacrifice without love? Yeah, if you sacrifice so that you can be the hero. If you sacrifice out of self-interest. If you sacrifice so that you could get the credit, then Paul says, you really gain nothing when you do it that way. 
Some people in Corinth may have had this gift of helps. These are gifts that are available to us, gifts of service, gifts of generosity, supernatural generosity. And maybe they're operating in these gifts, and they're saying, look, look at how much I sacrifice for the church. Look at how much I give to the church. They're trying to get noticed by the right people. They're trying to get rewarded for their efforts that go above and beyond. Notice me. Notice how much I gave. Notice how much I helped. But without love, they really gain nothing. Love, when it's absent, no matter how spiritually gifted we are, friends, no matter how sacrificial you are, no matter how generous you are, you can be the world's greatest philanthropist, and yet without love, these amount to nothing. So what is love? Paul walks us through the principles of love in verses 4 to 7. Love is patient. The word here is long-suffering. It's more than just, I love you, so I'm just going to wait here at the mall for two hours while you do your shopping, and I'm going to be just sitting here patiently waiting for you, honey. Right? The idea is more than that. It's, 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 it's endurance in the midst of suffering. Love is incredibly patient in difficult relationships. Does anyone here have a difficult relationship? It endures even unfairness, mistreatment. In, in relation to spiritual gifts, perhaps Paul is calling us to be patient with those who are exercising their gifts in such a way that's offensive to us. We kind of get bothered and irritated by them, and we need to give them extra grace. They are EGR people. They're annoying. They may even cause us some inconvenience for us. Pastor, it's 2 in the morning, but I need you right now, right? I, I'm not saying you can't do that. Just don't do it when all you need is, you know, nothing, right? Patience. Maybe they're trying to discredit us. Man, Pastor, he said this. I'm going to go to the other church, right? And then you guys say, well, how, okay, patience, that takes a long time. How long, Pastor? How long do we have to be patient with this person? That's a good question. A long time. Long suffering, right? When are you going to discipline them? That's a different um, sermon. Uh, church discipline, right? But imagine how patient God is with us. If God was impatient with us, I think of the Greek god Zeus. You guys know Zeus? He has a lightning bolt in his hand, and if he sees someone messing up, what does he do? He just hurls it at them, boom, fried, right? Imagine God doing that to us. If his patience ran out with us, we'd be fried. But he is patient, slow to anger, rich in love. Love is kind. Is it, can you be patient without being kind? Um, you're like, oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put up with you, but you have it coming to you one day. I'm just going to wait. I'm not going to say anything, but, man, God's going to zap you one day, right? So that's not kind. Patience in action is kindness. So being patient uh, means you're not going to use your unspiritual gifts. And uh, some of us have unspiritual gifts. Mine is sarcasm. 
Anyone else have that spiritual gift? Blessing? You do? No? Others have the unspiritual gift of criticism? Yeah? Don't raise your hands. You know who you are. How about condemnation? That's an unspiritual gift. So you could be patient on the inside, but on the outside, you're like, man, you're going to get what you deserve. Or man, oh yeah, I know you're a Christian, you're loving, but yeah, whatever. Right? Don't be sarcastic. We need to stop being critical. We need to stop being condemning. We need to be kind. Tell someone, be kind. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Again, a problem we have in Corinth is folks who have the lesser gifts, they're becoming jealous of those with the greater gifts. Or maybe people in church are more blessed than others. And so you're looking at someone and go, man, they're so blessed. I'm not. Maybe God loves them more. And so they're making comparisons. Love doesn't make comparisons. Love rejoices when God blesses someone else. Oh, wow, sister, you're so gifted in that area. You're a gifted worship leader. It's such a blessing. Not, oh, man, I think I could sing better than her. Why, don't, why, why am I not up there? Why didn't God make me more gifted in this arena, right? We need to, to encourage people in their gifts. Say, you're using your gift for the glory of God. That's awesome. And on the flip side, love doesn't boast. So you, you have been given a greater gift or greater blessings. Don't flaunt it. Look at me. My gift is so good. I'm more spiritual than you. God loves me more than you. Boasting makes people resentful of you. It creates an unloving atmosphere. It doesn't foster unity in the body of Christ. Love is not proud. The word is puffed up. It's like, look at me. Leaders and volunteers, ministry leaders, be careful that you're not serving just to get attention or recognition. Don't have this inflated ego when it comes to your spiritual gifts. I used to, well, sometimes I joke around that every time I'm not here, like last week, people at Norwalk freak out. Oh, where's Pastor Ken? Something bad's going to happen today. That's a very egotistical, inflated view of my own gifts. Because God can just give any of you gifts to, for the body of Christ so that when when I'm not around, Pastor Ron's not around, and Pastor Ken Bringis, Pastor Susan, when we're out, when Blessing's not leading worship, it's not going to fall to pieces. God has gifted other people with their own giftings to contribute to the body of Christ. And only Christ should get the glory when we're all working together in our spiritual gifts. Amen? Amen. Love does not dishonor others. Another translation says, love is not rude. And, and this idea is more than just having good manners. We want our kids to have good manners, right? You want to go up to, your, to someone older and say, you know, hi, kuya, hi, ate. We're very respectful as a culture. But this is more than just treating people with respect. The word for dishonor refers to a shameful act. And I can't, I, I think about chapter 5 when Paul talks, uh, he, he says, look, there's a report in your congregation that you, one man is sleeping with his father's wife. 
your stepmother. That is disgusting. And the church was doing nothing to, pro to, to stop that behavior. That's very dishonorable. That's promoting an, ex that's an extreme case of dishonor. And so Paul is saying, look, love has no room for that kind of dishonor. You can't let that happen. Love isn't self-seeking. Again, using your spiritual gifts for personal gain, personal praise and attention, rather than benefiting others. Love isn't easily angered. This could be translated as touchy or irritable or overly sensitive. No one here is like that, right? It means you have a sharp edge. People don't want to touch you. Oh! People don't want to be around you. You get so hung up over minor things. Maybe you're a perfectionist, and whenever someone does something, it falls short of your standards, and you're quick to criticize. You shouldn't do it that way. That's not loving. You make it hard for people to love you. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is not historical. You know that word? Hey, I know what you did three weeks ago. You know what you did three years ago? It still hurts me, right? So you bring up things of the past, and you kind of hold it against people. You're never going to change. Remember that time? Remember when you did this? When it comes to, to spiritual gifts, we have to allow people to grow in Christ. You don't disqualify someone from the ministry just because they messed up in the past. You allow God to restore them back into ministry. Number 10, love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Two things there. Some people like to see other people fail. Ha! I knew it! You don't go to church very often. That's why you're having so many problems. See? Or, you know what? I know you're living a lifestyle that is not up to par like mine. That's why you have so many issues in your life. It's like you're gloating over their failures. You're delighting in the bad things that are happening to other people. And you're making yourself feel good about it. That's not loving. But love rejoices in the truth. Love celebrates people's honesty. Love celebrates when someone says, look, I don't have it all together right now. I'm going through some problems. I've failed in this arena of my life. Would you help me get restored? Would you pray for me? I don't want to be a fake Christian. And so a loving church surrounds this person with love. It says, look, whatever it takes, we want you to be restored back. We rejoice in your honesty. Rejoice in the truth of God's word being played out in your life. Right? Love always protects. It creates a safe environment. This church is a place where you can come in and not be condemned and not be criticized. We're not going to threaten you. We're not going to say, look at your shortcomings. Look at your deficiencies. We're not going to highlight those things. 
We're going to allow the Lord to cover it with love and say, you know what, whatever you need, you can get healed here. You can get restored here. All your shortcomings can get re revived here. We want to protect you. We don't want to gossip about you. We don't, we don't want to tear you down. Love always trusts. It doesn't lose faith. It's willing to see the best in other people. You're not just going to say, I'm suspicious about you. You don't belong here. I'm going to give you uh, the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to allow for healthy conflict, honesty, and openness. Love always hopes. A loving church hopes for the best. It hopes in Christ. It gives people a second chance, and a third chance, and a tenth chance. And we want God to do the work of restoration. We hope that God can restore you. I'm going to surround you with that kind of loving hope. Finally, love always perseveres. It doesn't give up. T turn to someone and say, don't give up. And, turn to, and tell them, I'm not going to give up on you. Hardship and pain doesn't stop love. They continue to trust God in the midst of storms and setbacks, and they continue to serve God no matter what. So we have the preeminence of love, the, the principles of love, and finally Paul talks about the permanence of love. Love never fails. The Passion Translation, love never stops loving. Love never stops loving. Every other spiritual gift is going to come to an end. Tongues, prophecies, knowledge, healing, all the other gifts, but not love. Love is going to remain. Love is eternal. It never ends. It's superior to all the other gifts. And that's why the expression of the gifts in the absence of love is worthless. Now, Christians throughout the years, you can read church history, and, and, and they've debated whether or not some of the spiritual gifts have already ceased. And I'm not going to get into that debate this morning. I'm just going to tell you where we stand as a church. They have not. They are available to all according to how the Holy Spirit wants to distribute these gifts. The Holy Spirit determines who gets what. And that includes speaking in tongues, prophecy, interpretation of tongues, healing, service, knowledge, word of knowledge, mercy, administration. All of the spiritual gifts that are found in Scripture are available to us today according to the Holy Spirit and how he distributes it. And so you can desire a spiritual gift. Paul says, desire the greater gifts. They're still valid and in operation today, but use it for the building up of the body of Christ in concert with other believers using their unique gifts so that when we all use these gifts in this temporary life that we are living in right now, we will glorify God. These gifts will come to an end, but one thing that never ends is love. And so the three greatest pursuits of our Christian life should not be miracles and powers and spiritual gifts. They should be faith, hope, and love. These three. We talk about faith. We talk about the hope we have in Christ. We talk about love, and we display love. The gifts of the Spirit are precious to us as believers. We want 
all of you to operate in your spiritual gifts. But apart from love, they're meaningless. Every gift is meaningless. Without love as the motive and the goal, they're meaningless. If you lose love, you lose everything. And Paul sums this up at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16. And with this, we close. Worship team, you can come up. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14. Let love and kindness be the motivation behind all that you do. What's your motivation? Ask somebody, what's your motivation? As a leader, as a volunteer, as a parent, as a worker, employee, as a student, as someone in a position of influence, what is the motivation behind all that you do? Are you motivated just to get praise and accolades and recognition? That's the opposite of love. And so I would invite you to stand with me, and I just want to pray over us that we as a Christian community would keep love in front of us. Am I doing what I'm doing because of love? Or am I doing it for my own glory? There's a couple who woke up one morning and the wife nudges her husband and tells him, honey, you gotta wake up. It's Sunday. We gotta go to church. And the husband pulls the blanket over his head and, and mumbles, I don't, I don't think I want to go to that church today. The worship is great, the preaching is excellent, but the people, they, there's so much drama. They complain all the time, they criticize, they gossip. So much pride, so many issues in that church. So I don't know if I ever want to go to that church anymore. And the wife says, I understand, dear, but you have to go to that church. You're the pastor. <laughs> That's not our church. But without love, we could operate in every spiritual gift that we have. We, without love, we would go in that direction. For the Corinthian church who is doing all these wonderful things, they're looking Christian on the outside, but they are not a loving community, and we don't ever want to go down that road. Amen? So my prayer for us today is that we would love each other as a Christian community. We would operate in the fullness of the spiritual gifts that have been given to us so that people will see us and say, you know that church, New Life? They're loving people. They know how to love. That's the kind of church I want to be in. Amen? Let me pray for us.